Welcome to the Indigo Podcast, an exploration of human flourishing at work and beyond. I'm Ben Barron of Indigo Anchor and Cleveland State University. And I'm Chris Everett of Indigo Anchor. For more information, please visit us at www.indigopodcast.com. All right, so today we're going to talk about sense-making, leadership, and COVID-19. That's right. So today we're going to talk about what's called the collapse of sense-making and a way in which organizations and our institutions around us are fragile. We're going to talk about how to lead the charge and how individuals and organizations can support. And then we're going to talk about some emerging new tasks and roles for management due to COVID-19. It just seems like such a relevant thing for us to address here today. And I want to give a big shout out to Cliff Scott. Cliff Scott is a professor of communication studies and organizational science at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. He was on my dissertation committee and introduced me to many of the different pieces of literature that we're going to talk about today. So Cliff is awesome, and we'll also probably talk about something that he uh, has a a little bit that he posted on the UNC Charlotte website about key principles for leaders um, to communicate during crises. So uh, let's go ahead and jump right in. What do you say, Chris? Yeah, so now I know who to hate for giving you a PhD, right? Well, at least one of them. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, you know one of them, I suppose. I said, yeah, it's a group effort. So um, <laughs> the collapse of sense-making, um, and this is a way in which organizations are fragile, and I think we've seen that fragility. Now, mm-hmm. that fragility is more than just, okay, all of our employees are fired and shutter the door, right? Mm-hmm. You know, rounding the wagons is actually a reasonable response sometimes. But um, we're actually seeing things fall apart that's not just circling in the wagons. So we hear a lot of stuff about these companies should have planned, right? Mm-hmm. And that that's a sense-making property. So people are sensing that they know everything that organization faced or came through. Um, Let's say your deal was to, you know, you only had two months of operating expense because you just opened your company, right? Mm -hmm. So sometimes we can plan for these contingencies, but other times you just get hit. I mean, if aliens were to land tomorrow, are we going to stone people for saying, where was your alien contingency plan? <laughs> <laughs> Probably, uh, but you're right. right? Sometimes we, we definitely can plan for some contingencies and we should. Uh, you know, this is why business continuity plans and other types of scenario planning is very, very important. Uh, but there are times in which the unexpected happens, um, things that we truly can't imagine. Uh, and e- even if we can think through, for example, uh, the effects of a pandemic, uh, something like COVID-19, uh, you know, it- it's very difficult for that message and for that understanding of what it could imply for everyday life um, to really be absorbed by everyone. You know, um, I-, I would say COVID-19 is kind of, you know, in this category of getting hit by a truck out of the blue. Um, despite all the warnings that certainly experts have given us for years about our lack of of preparedness for pandemics, right? Right. And and when you look at entrepreneurs, could you imagine them going to a venture capital raise? And let's say traditionally, they only needed like 10 million bucks or something, right? Mm -hmm. And they're like, oh, well, I need 60 million. (laughs) Well, why do you need 60 million? Well, 10 to get the thing off the ground and an extra 50 to survive like a zombie apocalypse that might occur for three year period of time. Uh, (laughs) You know, that's, I don't think anybody's uh, going to hand you any cash to run a company, right? <laughs> well, right. Well, and the the, un- the the uncomfortable thing that we have to all reconcile with is that we are always making trade-offs. We are always making trade-offs between things like, uh, you know, efficiency and preparedness. Um, things like, you know, safety and... Um, <laughs> you know, uh, gas efficiency. So for example, you know, we could probably make aircraft with, uh, you know, so much, um, reinforcements and out of certain types of materials that they could probably withstand a lot of, uh, crashes. 
And yet we can't do that because then they would be so darn heavy and so inefficient that it would be crazy to even try to run them. So we are always making these kinds of trade-offs. And we, we certainly do this in organizations because we can't plan for everything. And I think it'd be impossible to, to do that. Um, you know, and, and pandemics are one of those things. I think after this all um, starts to settle out and so forth and becomes more of the new normal, it probably will be uh, more relevant and salient to people, obviously. So it will get baked into people's preparedness plans and so forth. But I, I really think it's unfair to say that everyone should have, you know, imagined what this would be like. You know, I, I think, you know, experts certainly have been talking about this, this type of contingency for years. Uh, but it would, be, would have been very difficult, if not impossible, for people kind of across the board to truly imagine the scale and scope of what we are experiencing right now uh, around the world, at home, at work, how it's going to really influence your your daily lived experience, so to speak. Right. But the cool thing is when I start to see these kind of, these should have done this, that should have happened, what is going on here? These are flags, you know, my consultant mind, you know, gets awakened, right? You know, this mm -hmm. is people trying to make sense of their environment. And there's just this, this idea that how we act in the world, right? And this comes out of the literature and philosophy, honestly, um, that how we act in the world creates a stack of meanings that lead to some kind of sensible response from the environment. Um, mm -hmm. And that's because we interact in our environment a lot, and we do have a bit of control, right? So, you know, nobody's concerned when they walk out their front door that gravity's going to stop working. So mm -hmm. we have some of these, you know, constants that, that going, but sometimes stuff that's so far out of our reality and scope um, happens. And, you know, I'll hear stuff... Um, where people are attributing meaning where it probably doesn't exist. You know, everything happens for a reason. Well, sometimes that reason is a butterfly flapped its wings, you know, a thousand miles away a year ago or something, right? There's just this chaos that can happen as part of our world. And so if you were out on the moon, let's say, you, you know, you get beamed over, you're in a spacesuit, and you're there on the moon, and a rock landed, you know, 20 feet from you. I don't, because that's an environment that you're not super comfortable with, or as usual, you don't have those stacks of meanings in your head. It's doubtful you'd be like, hmm, that rock landed there for a purpose. I'm supposed to mm -hmm. write, you know, an epic uh, book or something like, you know, that. that's not the kind of thing that'll happen. Sure. So I, you know, I think the, the key here is to, is that these types of extraordinary events, when they happen, they can lead to what we call a collapse of sense-making within our organizations, within uh, teams. And uh, this is when there's a, a really a total paradigm shift uh, in, in our ordinary way of thinking. And, you know, the ways in which we normally solve problems maybe don't work. Uh, and, you know, so there's a, there's some great literature that we're going to be talking about today. There's a, uh, a lot of this comes from Carl Weick and Carl Weick is, um, he's a professor emeritus from University of Michigan and an organizational theorist, uh, has done a lot of work on crises and, uh, this whole idea of sense-making, how we understand the world around us and how we deal with it. And there's, he's, there's an article. He's genius. If you are yeah. not familiar with his stuff. <laughs> Go read all of it. You know, like th this is the guy on this stuff. One of the right. main guys. Yeah. Sure, sure. And, you know, there's this article that we'll talk about, um, you know, probably a little bit more in depth here in today's episode where he's talking, he's basically analyzing this event that happened um, a number of years ago uh, where there were smoke jumpers that were attempting to fight a fire in Montana, I believe. And he talks about this idea that, you know, there are these things that happen in which our, our complete way of understanding the world changes. And I think a lot of us have experienced that in the last couple of weeks. Um, and he calls it a cosmology episode. And I don't want to get too much into the weeds in terms of kind of why he calls it that. Um, but he says, hey, this, is, this is something that occurs when, and I quote, 
people suddenly and deeply feel that the universe is no longer a rational, orderly system. What makes such an episode so shattering is that both the sense of what is occurring and the means to rebuild that sense collapse together. Stated more informally, a cosmology episode feels like vu jade, the opposite of deja vu. (laughs) Right? And, and and, And I continue quoting, he says, I've never been here before. I have no idea where I am, and I have no idea who can help me. And I, I think that, you know, that's, that's kind of the extreme example, and maybe some of us haven't gotten there yet in terms of uh, what's going on with COVID-19. But I think there are moments when, especially people who are on the front lines of this and people dealing with it, have certainly felt like this, right? This is, this is a new reality that we're having to make sense of. And this is different from other things that we have experienced, which is, which is what makes it so disorienting for many people. Yeah, so I had Vujade events for us, uh, 9-11, right? Yeah. Um, Katrina. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Certain technology innovations, like when the, the internet got turned on in everybody's houses, they were like, oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it used to be that like people would be isolated Broadly, their exposure to the w- wider world came through like media outlets and stuff. Um, mm-hmm. But now they're actually talking to somebody. And I think a lot of people thought, oh, well, most people are kind of like me. They just maybe dress a little differently or eat a different food. Um, mm-hmm. And then they're scandalized to realize, oh my gosh, these people think totally different than me. The paradigm changes. Um, Mm -hmm. terrorism was something that happened, um, overseas, uh, you know, when I was a kid, you know, you'd hear about those things on maybe NPR or something. You'd be like, man, those guys are really upset over there. You know, you just didn't have any frame of reference, but when the twin towers came crashing down, right. All of a sudden, okay, well, what's this terrorism thing about, right? Your paradigm and scope of the world, um, shifts. That's right. And it's interesting you bring up terrorism because I think that is kind of the the threat that we certainly as Americans have kind of gotten used to dealing with and have reconciled to some degree with it being a reality since 9-11. Now, 9-11, goodness sakes, was now almost 19 years ago. Um, and, you know, what what seems to be an appropriate response in the face of terrorism uh, oftentimes is something like defiance. It's, you know what? Uh, we're not going to let this scare us. We're still going to go out shopping. We're going to go about our lives. We're going to, you know, take the fight to where it needs to be. We and don't so negotiate forth. with terrorists, you know, that kind right. of, yeah. Right. And I, I wonder, and I, so this is not an original thought. I, I Someone on Twitter posted this. I thought just thought it was good. I, I can't find it, but it was, it was really good. Just this idea that maybe, you know, <laughs> because we've been so... Uh, ingrained to think about the threat as terrorism and that this response of defiance is something that uh, seems to be appropriate in that context, um, you know, people in, in some ways are using that as a frame to try to understand something like a pandemic. And, and that doesn't work because we can't, we can't say, just go about your lives. We can't say, oh, you know, we're going we're gonna to beat this thing, get out there and, and go to the movies, right? That doesn't work. Um, that frame of reference, that way of understanding reality in the world is inappropriate given the current reality. And we, therefore, we are facing, you know, this, this new way of thinking, this, uh, this sense that we've never been here before. Right. You know, the military deals with this, um, that the, one of the critiques is we're always fighting the last war mm-hmm. and, and it, so many ways our organizations and our cultural ways of organizing, you know, neighborhood, town, city, that kind of stuff generally, um, is set up to fight the last war, you know, whatever that, that is now it becomes really hard. So if you hit, take something like the military, okay, we're fighting in these environments where, you know, it's small unit warfare, um, terrorist events, you know, bomb trucks, that kind of thing, versus uh, what we call conventional warfare, which would be like, you line up your tanks on that side, I'll line up my tanks on this side, and ready, go at it, right? Um, <laughs> you know, but that being said, um, 
you know, we've been fighting the war on terror, as they call it, for so long that some of these conventional warfare skills have kind of perished. And it's just the way right. we think. You know, you can you only have so much uh, resource, people, training methodologies and stuff, consciousness raising, you know, like, hey, we got to also remember and train on fighting with traditional force-on-force force type stuff. It becomes a challenge. So, and our organizations have these same challenge. What should you gear your organization up for? How do you make those kinds of shifts? Right, right. Yeah, and, you know, this idea of fighting the last war is, is I, I think, one that is really appropriate here because, you know, we use those prior frames of reference to try to address those threats or challenges that we have now. And that, that's fine as long as those challenges are similar. But oftentimes they aren't, or sometimes they aren't. And when they aren't, uh, we can really get ourselves into trouble. So if we treat, for example, you know, COVID-19 like a terrorism attack, uh, you know, in, in all those different ways of being defiant and so forth, that's not going to work very well. Um, and, and, you know, there's, I think, a, a bias that we sometimes have towards, you know, trying to think, oh, this is like this thing, and therefore I should treat it that way. Um, but sometimes things are completely different. And we have to question ourselves uh, to make sure that we're not falling into that trap. Right. And so the cool thing about this, and we can start shifting over to talk about how to lead the charge and how individuals and organizations can support leading that charge in a correct response, is your person or your organization may not have had all the sense-making stuff in relation to a pandemic. That being mm -hmm. said, there are experts that have been out there exploring this stuff. Anytime there's a major event, you know, like there were counter-terrorist experts well before 9-11. And so event happens and then all of a sudden you're going, um, you know, what do we do? What, you know, they pull these experts out of the closet and and thrust them out there. And so um, same thing here. Wyke is one of the experts on sense-making and then what you need to do to build your resilience from there. Right. So maybe now we could turn our attention towards discussing, you know, this, uh, this article that he wrote. And this, is, uh, this has been around for a while. He published this in 1993, but it's, I think it's still very relevant to what we're talking about here today. And this, uh, this article is called The Collapse of Sense-Making in Organizations, The Man Gulch Disaster. So um, there was a, 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 for, a, a forest fire, a, um, a fire that was occurring uh, out in the middle of nowhere in Montana, but it needed to get dealt with. And a group of uh, smoke jumpers um, took off to go fight that fire. And this was actually in uh, 1949, um, very hot day uh, in August of 1949. And these smoke jump jumpers went out to to fight the fire, uh, they went out there, you know, via an aircraft, um, and they uh, started moving towards the fire, started evaluating what was going on. Um, they initially evaluated this as, you know, a fire that they are going to be able to probably be able to beat uh, within, you know, the, the next uh, day, and, you know, kind of a no big deal type situation. And, what uh, Carl Weck does in his article is he analyzes this situation um, based upon a book, actually, that really goes deep into the, the actual event called Young Men and Fire, uh, and, you know, kind of analyzes it through this, this paradigm of organizational theory and teamwork and so forth. Um, and what was, was interesting, what happened in this situation is that uh, these smoke jumpers, um, they're, they're starting to go through their day. And they're starting to, you know, kind of evaluate how they're going to attack this thing. Um, but then something changes. And I, I think it's worth, uh, worth quoting here from Carl Weick's article. And he is, in this, in this quote, he's also quoting a few times from that book, uh, Young Men in Fire. Uh, but what Carl Weick writes is he says, At this point, the reader hits the most chilling sentence in the entire book. Then Dodge saw it. Uh, so just as a, an aside, Dodge was the, uh, the leader of the, the, the group. 
what he saw was that the fire had crossed the gulch just 200 yards ahead and was moving toward them. Dodge turned the crew around and had them angle up the 76% hill toward the ridge at the top. They were soon moving through bunch grass that was two and a half feet tall and were quickly losing ground to the 30-foot high flames that were moving soon moving toward them at 610 feet per minute. Dodge yelled at the crew to drop their tools, and then, to everyone's astonishment, he lit a fire in front of them and ordered them to lie down in the area it had burned. No one did, and they all ran for the ridge. Two people, Sally and Rumsey, made it through a crevice in the ridge unburned. Hellman made it over the ridge, burned horribly, and died at noon the next day. Dodge lived by lying down in the ashes of his escape fire, and one other person, Joseph Sylvia, lived for a short while and then died. The hands on Harrison's watch melted at 5.56, which has been treated officially as the time the 13 people died, end quote. Uh, you know, so he's talking about this incredible kind of paradigm shift that's occurring. Uh, this guy saying, hey, um, you know, everyone's trying to run up this hill, trying to get away from the fire. And, and uh, the leader says, uh, drop your tools you know, so you can run faster. And he also lights a fire in front of him uh, to to basically create a, a, an area that was already burned. And he then he gets down and lies in it. And he, and he says, hey, get in here with me. And they don't. Um, and they go on and uh, they, most of them die. Uh, so it's this fascinating event. And then Carl White goes through and talks about how this is, this is an example of the collapse of sense-making and all these different ways in which um, they failed to understand what was going on. I think these lessons are so relevant to all of us when we're dealing with the unexpected, when we're dealing with things like a pandemic, uh, that we that we take some lessons from these types of events. Yeah, you know, I don't know a whole lot about fight. I mean, I don't know anything about fighting fires, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so when I when I was reading the um, here's what happened stuff, it was like, what do you mean he's lighting a fire? Like it, I could mm-hmm. not make sense. Of all these events. Now, these guys are, you know, experienced firefighters. Well, way more experienced than I am. So, you know, they had different types of sense, but some of them were, you know, they just ran for it. You know, forget you and your crazy fire. <laughs> I'm heading for mm-hmm. the hills, right? And, and you know, we see stuff like the collapse of group thinking um, or group decisioning and different qualities of decisioning. But the main piece is something crazy had happened. They thought the fire was easily manageable. It quickly became unmanageable. And then there was different qualities in the way that they interacted and sensed um, what to do. Right. And so, you know, this episode today is all about sense-making and leadership within this new context of COVID-19. And so we want to unpack this idea of sense-making a little bit. Um, and, you know, the, the so there's... a. Uh, a number of ways to think about this, but it's it's this basic idea is that we are in an ongoing way trying to understand and uh, make sense of everything around us, right? We do this retrospectively. We do it about, hey, what ha- already happened? Um, and, you know, it, it's, and there's a great quote here from, uh, from another article by Morgan Frost and Pondy, and it says, um, that you know, individuals are not seen as living in and acting out their lives in relations to a wider reality, so much as creating and sustaining images of a wider reality, in part to rationalize what they are doing. They realize their reality by reading into their situation patterns of significant meaning. Yeah, so people start this sense-making thing, and um, we're prone... And when you're in that chaos world where nothing makes sense, everybody's operating kind of off their own sheet of music. Experts will start to project stuff onto it. Um, people might come up with just, you know, the fantastic. This just has some purpose. Um, and those aren't bad things. We've got to tap into all of those. So um, there's this idea of bricolage, right? Um Ben, what is bricolage? Right, right. So now we're kind of moving into how we can perhaps lead the charge and how individuals and organizations can support, right? How can we deal with all this and how can we make sense better? So bricolage is this idea that we can make do with the things around us, that we can put together um, pieces of our environment that uh, maybe 
weren't used for certain purposes, but now we're going to repurpose them. Uh, and uh, you know, some examples of people doing this right now. We have uh, whiskey distillers who are starting to make hand sanitizer. We're having. I was reading a great story about. Um, I think it was an anesthesiologist who also had an engineering background who uh, made some some changes and advances in ventilators so that they could um, be used with more than one person at a time and so forth to really maximize that. Um, you know, some some really creative types of activities that can happen uh, in the midst of a crazy event like COVID-19. I'm kind of akin to, uh, you know, lighting that fire <laughs> to escape another fire like happened in, in this uh, incident back in 1949 at the Man Gulch um, disaster. Uh, you know, people are coming up with creative ways to do this. And, and what what is important is that as a leader, in a situation where you're facing the the unexpected, where you're facing the truly uh, paradigm-shifting type of environment like COVID-19, you have to create the conditions under which improvisation and bricolage creativity can flourish. If you don't, you truly run the risk of you know, treating this like something else, of um, you know, really treating it in a, in a way that's not going to be productive, in which can actually make the problem worse or lead to disaster. Uh, so that, I think that's a really important thing for for leaders in this time to consider. Uh, you know, this is not the time to assume that you know everything as as the person in charge. Right. So bricolage is making do. I mean, we we see entrepreneurs do this all the time because seldom do they get all the money and resources they want when they launch. Right. Right. And so you're you're sitting there looking around, but if you have just one paradigm, so you, you could. You could hand five different entrepreneurs uh, the same amount of money, the same resources, and tell them to go do this same thing. And the way they go about it will be different um, because mm-hmm. of the way that they frame, because the people and the creativity and imagination is different. And so within your organization, if, you're, if your doors are still open and you're evolving your business model within this environment, having a heavy top-down approach um, can limit your outcomes and your ways to evolve and adapt to the changing um, financial and organizational situation that you find yourself in. Right. I, I would say it, it will limit your ability to adapt. And you know, I think that <laughs> I was trying to be will. nice. Like, don't, yeah. <laughs> don't, don't shut your eyes here. You're going to have to fire on all cylinders, right? That means right. capturing the entire creativity of your organization and releasing that kind of creativity and means to be able to evolve so you can adapt better than your competitor in this environment. Right. And this this presents a bit of a challenge if, you know, your operating style as a leader up to this point has been top down, you know, truth and power come from above and only from above. Uh, that that doesn't work very well to try to shift because people aren't going to be used to it. Um, but I think you know you have to be very explicit with the people around you and say, "Look, I I need to I'm going to push you to to challenge me." Right? When, if you just surround yourself with a bunch of of yes people who um, agree with everything you say, and you know, <laughs> I was actually working with my reserve uh, my Navy Reserve unit. Um, uh, a couple weeks ago, and uh, I was making the joke that you know I was going to make them all call me dear leader, like uh, Kim Jong Un, and that I, I needed I was going to order them to all enthusiastically clap whenever I said anything and smile, you know, because that that's what that's what Kim Jong Un does with his people, right? You have to <laughs> you, you have to like express appropriate emotion, otherwise you get you know shot, and so um, you know that's kind of the extreme example of what you don't want. You don't want people to be blindly obedient in these situations. You want that creativity. You want that dissent within a group. Um, And people need to feel like they're not going to get, you know, their head chopped off if you, uh, if they, if they challenge you. Um, Because otherwise you are, you're going to limit your ability to do this bricolage, to do this sense-making that has to happen in these, in small teams and in groups and organizations when you're facing something like COVID-19. Right. So White talks about some of like four things that we can do to improve our resilience here. Um, mm-hmm. The first one of these is improvisation and bricolage. Um, so the second one is virtual role systems. Um, so 
this idea of role systems, if your organization's going on business as usual, everybody has a different role that they play, right? But when you hit this kind of event, every all the rules all change, right? And so mm-hmm. how would people improvise there? Um, one of the things you can do is socialize the different functions of the company with everyone. Not just what they do, but like how do they approach problems? Well, IT approaches problems um, this way or that way. Right, right. Um, you know, and, and I think there's just, a, you know, one example of not only virtual role systems, but also a bit of the improvisation and bricolage stuff uh, is, you know, if, have you ever seen the movie Apollo 13? Yeah. Yeah. So there's this great scene, and we'll post a link to it, where, um, you know, the, basically something happened on uh, on the spacecraft, and, um, you know, the people on the ground had to figure out how they were going to help those who were way up in space and needed their assistance. Uh, and uh, they basically recreate all the different pieces that they had on the aircraft, on the spacecraft, and said, this is what they have up there. We need to figure out how to make this work, right? And so this is this moment when these, these experts had to come together and try to combine things in a novel way in order to create a good solution, right? So, and this, this happens because they did have you know, this, this, not only the bricolage and the improvisation, but they also had this virtual role system in which uh, they had, you know, knowledge of what other people knew how to do. They had trust in each other as well. And that, that way they are able to cre- be, be imaginative as a team. Right. So, you know, Phil or Nancy knows that accounting cuts the check and pays the bills, right? But if they understood how they think about certain problems... Um, in IT, in operations, on manufacturing. Now, if, you know, that person can't perform that role or that function, other people kind of know what they do and how they think about things, and they can improvise. Well, hey, listen, um, we got one guy that knows how to operate this machine. Let's send a group of us down there. We can learn to operate the machine. Mm-hmm. Um, the it's There's a demand from, well, there's signaling from the environment. There's a demand and ways that you need to respond to be successful financially or organizationally or just survive in the case of a fire. And if people have the understanding of those different virtual roles, like virtually being those roles exist in their mind, they can improvise not only with the stuff, but with how to organize as a organization, as a band of people, that, that kind of thing. Right. And what's interesting, and Carl Weick talks about this, is he says, you know, even if your team is falling apart, right, and people aren't uh, being improvisational and things are not going well in a time of crisis, if you have good knowledge of how other people see things and how other people approach things, you can imagine yourself in their shoes and say, I need to see this, you know, I, I know this guy you know, Chris is a crazy person and I need to, what would Chris do in this situation? How would, you know, how would Chris be thinking about it? And, you know, I can, I can imagine that and that, that can break me perhaps out of my traditional way of approaching the problem and can broaden my uh, spectrum of, um, of potential actions I can take. So, so we've talked about the improvisation and bricolage. We've talked about the virtual role systems. The third thing that, uh, he talks about in this in this article that Carl Weick talks about in terms of how we can be more resilient is the attitude of wisdom. Right. So wisdom is different than knowledge. Um, mm-hmm. And just quoting from Weick, so wisdom is an attitude taken by persons towards the belief, value, knowledge, information, abilities, and skills that are held a tendency to doubt that these are necessarily true or valid and to doubt that they are an exhaustive set of things that could be known. So if you're wise, um, the expert in the room is saying X, Y, Z, A, B, C. You're asking, does this expertise really apply based on what we're sensing from the environment right now? Or is that expert just reacting according to their, you know, field of knowledge. You know, if if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Is that is that what's going on there? Mm-hmm. 
And and you're doing that not only with other people, but you're doing that with yourself. Yeah. Uh, right? right. And so I, I, you're not only kind of questioning, uh, and and it's it's this balance. It's this yin and yang of um, trusting expertise and trying to figure out what the best approach is, with also a healthy sense of doubt, so that you are continually reevaluating your assumptions, reevaluating uh, you know your your approach, so that you don't fall into the trap of. Uh, you know, falling so in love with your little plan. I love my little plan. It's a beautiful little plan. It's a tremendous. It's a tremendous plan. Uh, and 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 then realizing that you know your plan is is wrong. Right. You need to be questioning that. And you know another thing Carl Weick says, and uh, I I don't think he says it in this article, but I've he he says it somewhere else. Is uh, I just think it's a really good thing for leaders to be thinking about, especially in these times of crisis. Is argue as though you are right, but listen as if you are wrong. And you know you, you because people don't want you to stand like as a leader, people are going to really be listening to you. And you don't want to be standing up there and saying, well, I have no clue what's going on. Uh, you know, let's just figure it out. You, you, that's the wrong approach. However, uh, when you have some reasonable sense of what could work and you put that out to to your followers, uh, you should also be at the same time sensing from the environment and saying, you know, we're going to keep re- evaluating this. Uh, you know, this is what we know now. We may get more information. This is the approach that makes the most sense now based upon X, Y, or Z, uh, but we're going to reevaluate. Um, and actually, you know, so I, I'm here in Ohio and uh, our governor is is pretty much across the board being praised right now for how he has approached, how he and his, his uh, public health director, Dr. Amy Acton, have been um, handling this whole thing. And he was one of the first people to say, this is, this is not a normal situation. We've got to, you know, lock stuff down. We got to be braced, you know, for the long haul here. Uh, and at the same time, you know, revising things as more information comes out, which is, has been, has been good. And I think is, is showing this attitude of wisdom. Right. And so as a leader, when you're curating that attitude of wisdom, um, if you just come in to brief, all right, guys, this is what's going on. This is what we're going to do about it. That's not actually eliciting that improvisation or, people's creativities with virtual role systems or whatever. And if you have that type of environment generally, you know, which can be appropriate in a very process-driven organization, um, if that's if that's what's socialized before, you have to signal as a leader that, hey, not only am I giving you freedom to improvise, I'm wanting you to improvise. I need mm-hmm. you to talk to me. So the tone that you set at the top or when you sit down with your team is um, generally – one of competence and that you're familiar with what's going on, but you could shift and say, I expect, and I need to hear your ideas now. Um, These are ways in which you can signal that, Hey, the paradigm has changed. I need, I am fallible as the leader. I need you guys to help us as an organization be successful. Right. Right. So it's this balance between, as Wyke puts it, uh, extreme confidence and extreme caution. He says, extreme confidence and extreme caution can both destroy what organizations most need in changing times, namely curiosity, openness, and complex sensing. The overconfident shun curiosity because they feel they know most of what there is to know. The overcautious shun curiosity for fear it will only deepen their uncertainties. Both the cautious and the confident are close-minded, which means neither makes good judgments. It is this sense in which wisdom, which avoids extremes, improves adaptability. And that's really what we need from our leaders right now uh, as we're dealing with this pandemic. Yeah, and you'll see this in the agile uh, literature, right? Sure. You know, do we want to be, you know, there's always a continuity between, you know, overconfidence and uh, overcautiousness. Well, who would be either of those extremes? And so it's it's a false dichotomy to choose between those. You're like, between confidence mm-hmm. and caution, we're right here. And you put your X somewhere in the middle of that line um, to define how you're going to start going about things, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And, uh, you know, this also goes back to that whole idea we talked about earlier about, you know, <laughs> don't try to fight this like just like the last war. Avoid falling into these patterns of thinking that, you know, this is just like what we experienced previously. Now, 
Maybe it is, but maybe it isn't. And that, that's the, uh, the balance between confidence and caution that you really have to strike. Right. So the last one, uh, respectful interaction. Mm. Right. So, you know, this is, this is where sense-making is, uh, is probably best uh, thought of as a team sport. This is not something that we um, only do in our own heads. Uh, we make sense of our environment through the interactions that we have with others, um, especially face-to-face interaction with other people, because there is so much more information that is um, conveyed and meaning that is uh, that we we try to create together when we are breathing the same air, or at least can see other people and and can understand you know how how much confidence they have in their statements and so forth, right? Um, that's why being in the same space, if possible, is really important. So sense-making is a team sport. Right. And since um, you've defined rules previously and the org has operated in a certain way or the team has operated in a certain way, you actually got to dump that old kind of thinking. So you're not coming mm-hmm. and just... You know, if how you were operating as an organization was working fine despite... COVID and other types of these kind of vuja day experiences, then you wouldn't even be like interested in what's going on. You don't even need to sense everything. You're successful. This is just a blip on the radar. But when something comes and disrupts things so much, you actually have to shed those patterns um, mm-hmm. temporarily. So you get everybody in a room like, let's pretend we know nothing. And then you start through some of these thinking type patterns. All right, then you got kind of maybe a solution or a way to act or how you're going to behave based on what you sense. Then then bring back the old thinking and maybe do a sanity check on it, right? Mm-hmm. But this mm-hmm. this interaction has to be respectful or you'll kill it. You, you'll kill that creativity. Right. And another thing to consider is that in these times of crisis, in these times when nothing seems to be making a whole lot of sense... Uh, this can be emotionally jarring for people on your team, and they they sometimes you know can freeze and you know be just kind of reeling from what's happening. Uh, and in those situations, you know, in order to get the best out of those people in that moment, you really have to be intentional about um, helping them to to share and say, look, you know, this this is this is crazy for all of us. Acknowledge that it's tough. And say, look, at the same time, um, you know, we, we really need to be all be firing on all cylinders here. Uh, we all have great ideas. Um, let, let's start to share them and just get that conversation going uh, and get people talking about things um, to, to help to, to, to really kind of um, move towards something more productive. Because, uh, you know, I can just, just tell you, like dealing, for example, in, in various military situations I've been in where something unexpected happens, um, you know, sometimes people do kind of, you know, are in shock for a few moments and they're trying to figure out what's, what's, what needs to happen next. And, you know, this is where you have to look people in the eye, uh, you know, assure them that things are going to be okay. You know, even if you're not super confident about the, about that reality and say, look, let's figure this out together. And we really all need to pull together and do it. And even, you know, a little bit of, uh, a little bit of humor can even, then research does suggest this helps, can even break, uh, kind of that um, that cycle of, of of emotional tension that that sometimes occurs. Yeah, and so you know, one of the things I keep missing here or mentioning here is that the leader needs to, the leader needs to. But we've all mm. seen scenarios where the leader's frozen up. You know, right? He's he's the one that's mentally toast and not curating the type of sense making that needs to happen so that you can respond. Yep. Um, so this is, if you're mid-level in an organization, if you're lower, you can bring out these things, you know, bricolage and improvisation, attitudes of wisdom. Mm -hmm. You can suggest if you don't have that functional authority, it's like, Hey, maybe we lay out all our options and see what we can improvise. That can jar that leader into, Oh yeah, yeah. So I, I know what I can do now. Um, in the army, we see this kind of stuff because we'll have cameras um, set up to review teams. So we'll practice those teams on how to move uh, with their weapons in a small unit or, or whatever. And then somebody um, in the scenario will have a, you know, a bang go off or there's a casualty that presents itself while you round the corner in a training scenario. Well, I, I thought we were going to go 
kill terrorists in this training scenario. Now, now we've got like an American casualty. Right. The, we throw those kinds of events into um, into these training scenarios because we want to practice and rehearse bricolage, attitude of wisdoms, respectful interactions, these kinds of things. They'll happen. So if you're lower mid-roll, check. If your organization's frozen up, you can actually lead from below on these types mm-hmm. of items. Right, right. I think that is extremely important. And, uh, you know, when I say leader, I'm oftentimes referring to, you know, the, just the person who is kind of starting that social process of, of uh, you know, of interaction and uh, movement towards some sort of goal. So it could, that leadership role can, can certainly shift around within the group. Uh, and, you know, what you're highlighting, too, in terms of describing those training scenarios, I think really is um, an interesting feature of the military in which, you know, it, people who are outside the military kind of sometimes have this stereotype that think, oh, well, a bunch of like kind of robots who do what they're told and so forth. <laughs> I and I, it, it really couldn't be far farther from the truth. And it really, you know, especially in, in dynamic types of environments, um, the military really tries, and a lot of this research actually comes from the military, on how we can um, better make decisions and be, be more creative and improvisational in the face of unexpected events, because our lives depend upon it in those circumstances. It's really important. Um, and even from a planning standpoint, right, we, we do things called red teaming. So for example, you know, you come up with this plan about how you're going to do something, and then you have a group of people who are designated to be the, the, the naysayers and the dissenters and to poke holes in your plan and so forth and to kind of drive that creativity. And this really requires this respectful interaction. It requires people to have trust in each other, requires them to be honest and and also have some self-respect. So don't self-censor. If you have an idea, you have to say it. You have you have that not only that uh that ability but that obligation to do it. And um speaking your mind, listening to people along the way. Right. And you know, we're using these intense examples, fire, um, you know, training to fight terrorism, you know, that could give some people some tension maybe in their shoulders as a uh, Nobody's shooting at us right now, which is which is right. great. But that being said, the chaos to our organizations and the fiscal outcomes are nuts right now. And so right. we can dial into some of that kind of thinking paradigm as we start to figure out, well, what can we do to thrive? You know, if everybody mm-hmm. else in my industry is on pause right now waiting for some kind of fiscal bailout, what could we do? You know, I don't see... Um, you know, a lot of that conversation out on social media, everybody's just, they're still focusing on the doom and gloom. They haven't, they're like a lieutenant stuck in a situation. And, you know, now under the hood, some of this stuff can be going on, but I'm not seeing a whole lot of people talking about it. So when this kind of chaos happens, dial into these, you know, respectful interaction, bricolage improvisation, but also realize if you decide to do nothing, that that in and of itself is a choice, you know? Mm-hmm. So, and that's why sensing um, is so perfect. So if you see something bad, like a fire, if you just start running and you don't stop to take a sense of like, am I actually running? Am I in the middle of a fire? You know, maybe there's fire on all sides. Am I actually running? If you don't stop to do some of these sense-making behaviors, your response isn't going to be as calibrated as it might be. Right, right. And and I think your point about, you know, nothing is a choice. Um, you know, we need to be mindful of that. I think, you know, the way I always think of it is, uh, you know, like the uh, one of my favorite rock band trios, Rush, uh, said in one of their songs, you know, if you choose not to decide, you still have made a choice. And uh, this is very true in organizations as well. And in these moments of crises, sometimes you, you have to do something, see what happens, and then learn from it quickly, right? So this is the act, you know, res- sense and respond type of of modality that that maybe you have to have to do to get yourself out of chaos. Um, and so, you know, when when the rules of the game seem to have changed in all kinds of different ways, uh, sometimes you just have to try something and see what happens uh, to learn from it. All right. And sometimes, honestly, you're surrounded by fire. You know, there's always this fantasy that there's always going to be a good outcome. Well, this this person did bad because there was a bad bad outcome. But maybe maybe the options only were bad, horrible, and god awful, right? 
And the yeah. fact that there was a bad outcome was actually the best that could happen. Um, if you're stuck on the moon by yourself, there's no spaceship in sight, and you got five seconds of air left, well, I mean, you could start some bricolage or something, but you, sometimes <laughs> you're just hosed, right? Like, we, we got to be honest about that, right? So, but sense-making is something. If you want to shape your outcome as much as you can, sense-making is an important part of that. That's that's well said. And I, I do want to be clear that you know, I don't think that we as a society or organizations are necessarily uh, completely hosed in this situation, uh, it, but it is a, a, a very um, unique, it's a unique and difficult one for, for most organizations right now and for a lot of people personally. Um, so maybe we could turn our attention now to what are some of the emerging new tasks and new roles for management due to uh, the emergence of COVID-19? Right. So the better organizations I'm talking to and seeing right now are they are doing their disaster um, plans and stuff like that in as much mm -hmm. as they are. And they're like, OK, well, this is what we do. Or, or they're round the table. We've got to lay off 40 percent of our workforce. And, and they're going mm -hmm. through this. And and people kind of know how to move those levers, make those plays. Right. But what I don't see a whole lot of, um, and obviously this is just anecdotally, I haven't done a national survey on any of this kind of stuff, is the sense-making stuff. So an emerging mm. new task and role for management is being an enabler of sense-making. So you got to understand it, and then you also have to start at least in that next tier of leadership within your organization start enabling and training on some of these items. Right. And, you know, one way to do this is just to communicate what your sense-making process is. How will you, as team members, as people, shift and change? Uh, you know, what are the ways in which this environment is a fluid one? And really moving toward, and this is probably a good thing for all of us to learn anyway, um, regardless of our operating environment, but you know, moving towards this new normal of sensing and responding in a rapid way to what's going on. Right. And, you know, depending on how big your organization is, you know, a five-person team in a garage writing code is going to be able to sense and respond differently than a 60,000-some-odd-person organization, right? Right, right. That's certainly true. You know, and, and another way to think about this entire kind of leadership process that has to occur in terms of being an enabler of sense making is that, you know, you, you can kind of think of leadership, especially in times like like we are in right now, as the process of organizing the ambiguity around us. You know, we as humans, we don't like ambiguity. We don't like uncertainty. Uh, and uh a leader's job is to try to facilitate that process of organizing it. Um, and so there's a paper that I, I published about 10 years ago, um, actually with Cliff Scott, who, whom I mentioned earlier in the episode, um, where we talk about, where we analyzed a bunch of near-miss reports uh, where people almost had an accident happen. Um, and this was also with firefighters. Uh, but uh, looking at their, their communication patterns and what they did in those different reports. And, you know, a, a few different uh, interesting, you know, ideas that emerge from that is that this process of organizing ambiguity around us as a leader involves a, a couple different activities. One of those activities is helping to frame the situation, and as a as a leader, as a group, trying to gauge and assess the level of risk that you're facing, uh, trying to use some of the successes and failures that you've faced in other types of situations to try to inform what you're doing, but not being so married to them that you're going to treat every war like the last war, right? Right. Um, and then, so from framing, and then there's, uh, these aren't necessarily like a sequential. These are all kind of happening at the same time. Um, then adjusting, right? So, you know, maintaining a, your awareness of what's going on, but also remembering that, you know, you could be wrong. Your assumptions might be wrong. And remaining continuously poised for, uh, for change. Um, remembering that, okay, you, you know, it may feel really good to get your plan in place and so forth, but you also need to question it and realize that, hey, it does, does this plan still work? Um, or, or is there something else we need to be doing? And then the other um, piece of this organizing ambiguity is actually borrowing from a phrase that Carl Weick uses in another paper called heedful interrelating, right? And this is about communicating in a way 
that really helps the, the team, the group, to better make sense of what's going on. And remembering that, you know, instead of trying to, um, you know, do this on your by yourself, remembering that you're engaging with others as you're trying to recognize what's going on and realizing that what you do can have some unintended consequences. So, you know, this can help you in these times of uh, change and crisis to make some better decisions, to take some action. And that's going to create more ambiguity probably, but you're going to have to then go through the process of organizing that as well. Right. So, you start the sense-making process. You're framing, you're adjusting, you're heedfully interrelating, right? Then you're making some kind of decision, and then the environment tells you something back, and you're like, oh, this is starting to make sense, or this looks promising. Then you got to feed mm-hmm. feed that back into your org so they can, you know, bricolage and improvise with that new piece of knowledge, that new piece of sensing. And so slowly, 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 the image of what's really going on emerges and you're able to navigate and chart your course, right? Right, right. And so I think, you know, just to kind of uh, pull out some of the specifics here, you know, you got to remember in these situations that you don't know everything. That's not your job to know everything. And you shouldn't pretend like you do. Uh, You should try to find and use the experts that are around you. Uh, when people disagree and dissent with the team, embrace that. Uh, you know, thank people for doing it. Right. And you know, you know, you don't want to claim that the mission's accomplished too soon, right? <laughs> you, you know, right. Things start. You know, and it can feel that way because everything was super chaotic, and and then all of a sudden your sense making is starting to reduce some of that chaos. Well. You may feel, you know, it may just be the eye of the storm, right? So you need mm. to keep that that sense-making thing a- active. And actually, it should be active at all times. You know, you don't have to have a crisis to maintain the sensing um, because the crisis may actually be your competitor is beating the pants off you, right? You know, that kind of thing. Right. Yeah, I, all of these things that we, we're talking about here in this episode about sense-making are just as relevant in a competitive, ambiguous business environment as they are in, uh, you know, in the world right now dealing with a pandemic. Uh, these are all about sensing and responding appropriately. Um, you know, another a couple other specifics I think that uh, organizations and leaders need to be considering right now is, is you know, you've got to establish some structure for uh, controlling, you know, and commanding and helping to facilitate this uh, sense-making, you know, regarding COVID-19 in particular. Um, Your communication flow and your reporting to your people, people are going to be extraordinary. I know I have been like extraordinarily attuned to like new information. You know, you're probably on the, looking at the news more. Um, You're really listening to what people say. And that that communication flow and that reporting should be, um, it should be frequent and it should be uh, as clear as possible. Yeah, especially when a lot of you guys have, you know, remote workforces right now. Right, or, right. And so, you, yeah, you've got to put, a, put together some extra effort there. Um, so my, my good colleague and, and friend, Cliff Scott, um, you know, he, he just recently posted, uh, he wrote something for his university, the University of North Carolina at Charlotte, that they posted on their website, uh, all about um, just some key things to remember, some key principles for leaders communicating in times of uncertainty. And we'll post a link to this in the show note, and I'll just give you like the real highlights here. But, you know, he says that, you know, there's a danger in crisis, but also key opportunities for strategic influence. Um, leaders can influence how people interpret situations intentionally and unintentionally, kind of like we were talking about here with sense-making. Um, when leaders don't address uncertainty, employees may use rumor and speculation to fill in the blanks. <laughs> That's an important one, right? Uh, we, and and they do. They do. They do. Yeah. You would do yeah, it if I, you're they, in their spot, right? For, for sure. Right. Right. We, 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 because we are information seeking, um, you know, creatures. Uh, another thing that Cliff writes here, he says, don't assume you know everything you need to make decisions, right? Um, so, you know, he talks about how research shows that the most reliable, responsive organizations are those who allow organizations to be or allow decisions to be influenced by the experts, regardless of rank. Right. So this isn't a hierarchical thing. Um, and then he, he wraps up by talking about how you should acknowledge how complicated the situation is for your people and their families. Um, don't don't disregard the human element here. 
this is tough for people. It's tough for, um, you know, for people dealing with being isolated, for people losing their jobs, for people maybe dealing with um, the possibility or the, the reality of layoffs. All of those types of of events and circumstances um, are, are really tough for folks, and you need to acknowledge that as a leader. Right. And so communication flow often and clear, that's super important in setting the tone. Lots of times, you know, we were talking with a CEO um, yesterday, actually, that's about to lay off a decent chunk of his workforce. And and that's challenging for him. But if you're on like wave four of layoffs or something, and you haven't been clear and communicative, not only is that going to hurt your brand, it's going to hurt your perception, uh, people's perception of you as leader. It's going mm-hmm. to reduce trust in that organization. So go ahead and, and, and take charge. Make sure that communication flow is often and clear. Also, right. you might need to make some new policies um, as needed here. You know, work from home policies is one. But don't be so attached to them. Use that as a bit of a probe. Okay, so here's our current idea on this policy and how we're going to execute now. We will update and revise as needed. Um, you can have mm-hmm. your org give you feedback on that. How are these policies working? Um, okay, well, let's update. And then that will just pop that into our communication flow that that happens. Right, right. And actually, the I think a good example of this from my world right now is the Navy. So the Navy has done a, a good job, in my estimation, of um, quickly putting out uh, official information about here's what needs to happen with these types of circumstances. Here's some new policies and procedures we need to follow. And very uh, quickly um, revising those and and putting out new information um, along the way. You know, it's not like people aren't having to guess about a lot right now. Right. um, Which is, which is very helpful. Um, You know, and that's part of this communication piece. Right. So, so while you're going through this kind of stuff, you want to think about the strategic implications for your organization. Um, is this something to where you're not going to be a going concern anymore? Um, or you can't meet demand due to lack of workers. You know, if everybody at Amazon is out sick, well, you know, that, that's a huge impact. Some people, only get their diapers through Amazon, you know, if mm-hmm. they live way out in the middle of nowhere. So you need to think about those things and make sure that you're not just reacting to the fire at hand. You're also keeping the idea of where you're placed in the business environment and what strategies that's going to mean for you as you start sensing your way forward. Right. So there's a, uh, a Navy SEAL that I, whom I know pretty well and uh, work with and work for actually. And and he says, you know, there's a lot of kind of one meter and five meter targets right now. And, you know, things that are right in front of us. Right. And at the same time, you know, we've got to hit those one meter and five meter targets, those things that are close to us. Um, but we also need to, as you were talking about, think about what's what's happening long term and what, what this might mean in the future. You know, a few other things I'm hearing from some of my HR friends is, you know, you've also got to not only create those new policies, perhaps in your organization, but you, you know, I hope you, you know, as of this recording, this has been going on for a couple of weeks now in the United States. But you know, ensure that your people, if they are, you know, for whatever reason, still coming to work, um, you know, make sure they know what they're supposed to do if they're sick or they have symptoms. You know, in terms of reporting uh, and all that kind of uh, those types of actions. If you have people who are, you know, in your office, you know, make sure that uh, there's posters up saying you need to wash your hands and so forth, you may actually in your organization um, be called upon or be actively involved in contact tracing. So if you have someone who comes down with COVID-19, you need to be prepared to go th- have somebody who can help go through that process of, you know, who was that person in contact with? You got it. Um, and then on a positive note, you know, because some of this stuff seems kind of tense and maybe, you know, a little scary, but this is not just a time to maintain your culture. You know, if you have built a really good culture, but you can use this as a time to enhance your culture. Mm-hmm. Since we're forced into sense-making behaviors, if, you know, if we're doing this right, you can use it to bake this into your organization everywhere. Um, mm-hmm. So that when you're out of this type of crisis, that your company is sense-making writ large at all times. 
hey, did you know that our competitor's doing this? Oh, you might not have captured that before if you hadn't curated a sense-making function within your organization. Right, right. So we have the opportunity here, perhaps, to learn some of these sense-making skills and to actually create organizations that are more resilient in the future. Right. Ben, so how about a recap? Sure. So today we talked all about sense-making, leadership, and COVID-19. And in that, we talked about this idea of the collapse of sense-making and how organizations can be fragile if they're not doing this well. Uh, We talked about some ways in which we can lead the charge, so to speak, and how people within organizations and the organizations overall can support that. Uh, And then we talked about some of these emerging new tasks and roles for management due to this new reality that we're all dealing with with regard to COVID-19. Thanks for listening to the Indigo Podcast. If you like this podcast, please consider helping us by rating us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, telling your friends about us, having us on your podcast, or mentioning us on social media. Our website is www.indigopodcast.com, where you can access more information about us and this episode. Thanks again, and we look forward to talking with you again soon.